0: Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove podcast network. So what are you waiting for? Head to lionelracing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast.
1: In the very early days of NASCAR, there weren't any fancy markings on race cars, really. There was a number, of course, and if a driver was lucky and team owner was lucky, a sponsor name could be found on the back quarter panels of their race car. Sometimes sponsorship came from the form of, say, auto parts from local car dealerships. Or they could possibly have food from, say, a burger joint or a barbecue joint. And of course, the crew loved that. They could eat before the race and after the race. But how did those numbers and sponsored names get on the race cars? Well, it was pretty simple, actually. They came by way of the artist's brush and those small cans of paint that you could buy at the local hardware store. Sign painters would station themselves inside NASCAR garage areas to offer their services. They would have an assortment of colors, a wood paint box, maybe a stool or a milk crate to sit on. And then they would use something called a steady stick keep their hands steady to make sure that they were outlining everything on the race car just exactly right oh and let's not forget about that little tiny bit of liquor and maybe a little bit of turpentine and the key was to make sure they were using the turpentine to clean the brushes and maybe take a nip of the liquor you understand then they would be ready to show off their talents with the swirls of the brush with just the right moves to put the special touches on the cars driven by the superstars and the backmarkers. And just like money under the hood, they need a little bit of money on the outside of the car, too, to make them look really good. In some cases, the paint wasn't even good and dry before the green flag waved. Some tracks like Darlington and, say, Martinsville or, say, Asheville-Weaverville didn't matter all that much. They were going to get skin up pretty bad Anyway. But, you know what, from 1949, when NASCAR was formed until at least the early 60s, the paint strokes were flowing pretty regular, that is, until someone came up with a bright idea to print decals for numbers and good horsepower markings. After all, doing what was faster made the most sense, especially when looking at 55 to 60 race schedules that took drivers and teams around the country throughout the week and on short tracks, and then the big super speedways on Sundays. But for a special time in NASCAR history, the sign painters were rather busy people, painting sponsored names on quarter panels, becoming proud of their work, only to have a driver smear their creation when the cars got a little bit too close. They toss their brushes on the ground, walk away, then go back to clean off with what they did with mineral spirits, freshen them up, And then start over all over again. Like every other part of NASCAR history, the sign painters lettered the race cars during any given season in the 50s and early 60s were heroes in their own right. Today, it's a lost art in the world of full body decal wraps, but it sure is fun to see their beautiful work on old videos. and sure is a lot of fun to talk about. Those that lettered race cars in the past traveled the circuit, keeping them looking their very best throughout many NASCAR seasons.
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of. No, it's not a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast anymore. That's right, we are changing the name because we're going to broaden our horizons. We're going to become the Lifetime in Motorsports, and we obviously will still make NASCAR as our predominant series. But there's, we've had so many comments and, and uh, suggestions from fans and listeners about wanting to get other drivers and, and team owners, crew chiefs, uh, people like that, from other forms of motorsports like uh, IndyCar, NHRA. Formula One, etc. So this is, even though this is episode number 76 of what used to be called a Lifetime in NASCAR, it is now episode 76 of a Lifetime in Motorsports. So as usual, I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with my good buddy Ben White, and we have got a great special guest today. He's retired, but the man still is busier than he's ever been, former NASCAR historian (laughs) Buzz McKim Buzz, thank you very much for joining us. And um, I'm going to turn it over to to Ben because you guys go back so far. But I'm looking forward to talking with you today because we've got so many great stories for you guys to exchange, talk about car numbers car lettering uh you know the, the way the sport kind of evolved. i mean you were there you know through the 60s 70s 80s 90s and then of course you retired a couple of years ago but uh, uh ben i'm going to turn it over to you and um, buzz uh, thank you very much for joining us and i'm going to keep quiet and let but, let ben take over now <laughs> well
1: <laughs> thanks jerry and, and i echo what you said there thanks so much buzz for For being with us today and i i have to say that buzz has forgotten more than i know (laughs) let's just put it that way he's a great historian of nascar and just what an honor to have you with us today buzz and thanks for joining us My, my honor yeah well thank you and you know as as jerry said one of the topics we wanted to talk about today was how we see so many of these race cars over the years, of course, that have had door numbers and top numbers and sponsors on the sides. And it's such a fascinating story as to how all this came about in the very, very early days of NASCAR. Actually, 1949, uh, June 19th, uh, 1949, was the first race in NASCAR history over in Charlotte. Not Charlotte Motor Speedway, but Charlotte Speedway. A little small uh, bull ring, if you will, over off of Wilkinson Boulevard. And... Of course, when you got 36 cars or 40 cars or 25 cars, not like two football teams or basketball teams, uh, one wearing white and one wearing red, you had to have some way to identify those 25 or 30 or 40 cars. And so, of course, you had to put a car number on there and some kind of way to, and sometimes it was X's and sometimes it was letters and whatever the case may be, most times numbers. And so... You're sitting there thinking, hmm, what do we do? Well, to back up just a smidge further, you had to go into the uh, in those days in the kitchen and sit at the kitchen table and say, pass the potatoes, honey. I'm going to take the family car over to the <laughs> racetrack <laughs> and, r- and race the car. Now, you had one of two responses to that. She either either didn't hear you. Or she said, what the hell <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking? But anyway, you got one of those two responses. Yeah. And so so if you did get the car to the racetrack, you had to put some kind of marking on her or some kind of number. And very early in the in the mix, you pretty much went to the local shoe store. Mm-hmm. And if they had white shoe polish, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Buzz, but you would put the number on the car that NASCAR gave you mm. or issued to you. And you would put that on there with the white shoe polish. And then after that, of course, you would type up the headlights and uh, you had to get the old belt out of the closet that didn't fit the waistline any longer. And you would tighten that around the door. So the doors wouldn't <laughs> open. Right. That's right. And so uh, from there, then you would, If you're a religious type, you would get on both knees and pray. And you would pray, please, God, let me get this car back home without any scratches or dents. That was the next thing you did. But back to numbers, you would uh, put a number on there that NASCAR issued with you. But we were talking off air. And back in the 1950s, Southern 500s, some of those, all the cars actually, when they got to the racetrack, and then we're talking Buicks and Olds and Kaisers and Uh, Fords, predominantly Fords, and Cadillacs and Buicks and all these cars that were multicolored cars. They took laps around the Darlington Raceway and didn't have a number on them. And we saw some footage I did recently of these cars. uh, And the names of the drivers back in those days, of course, Speedy Thompson and Bill Rexford, who was the 1950 champion, 23, 24 years old. They drove the cars around that treacherous, what was then a 1.25 mile Darlington raceway that was extended to 1.366 miles later on, but they took the cars around there and they didn't have numbers on them. And uh, then later on, before the weekend race on Monday, Labor Day Monday, issued uh, NASCAR issued numbers. And either they were put on with uh shoe polish or they had sign painters and they came in and put uh, the numbers on there, I guess with uh, paints that, you know, Buzz and I've talked about those types of paints that were very forgiving, meaning that you could wash them off. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. And uh, so anyway, I could, I, I could talk forever, but Buzz has uh, a great historian. And maybe he could add into some of this, but some of those early cars had uh, numbers on them that. NASCAR issued, but some of those cars were on the track before, uh, you know, on the track, and then later on they got numbers. Right, bus?
3: That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, it was just so interesting how this has evolved uh, as far as car numbers and how they were issued. But back in the very early days, though, these, you know, we uh, the drivers would get to the racetracks and and they didn't know what number they were going to run until NASCAR said, "Okay, your number." For this week, or I guess in some cases for this year, uh, is going to be 25 or 30 or 31 or 38 or whatever the case may be. And and see if you can back me up here, Buzz. But sometimes you go to racetracks, you might have two cars that had 38 or two cars that had 22. So in some cases, the you might have a 22X or 22E. Yeah, exactly. Is that right? Sure. Maybe you can elaborate yeah. on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah, they might put an X behind it or or a one in front or behind it, that sort of thing. One twenty-one or two twenty-one or something like yeah. that, or two eleven, and, um, and so yeah, you could request your numbers too. Like you can still today, you know, if if you've got a specific number that you want to run. But back in those days, you know, nobody had really gotten into wanting to reserve their own numbers unless it was something very specific. But, uh, you know, it's like, um, uh, Bill Blair ran a car number 41 and a half <laughs> and, uh, he ran a half for most of the 1950, 51 wow. season.
1: That's interesting. And, and I, I wonder, uh, I mean, why, I wonder why 41 and a half. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> I've never seen that before. Interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. It's the only time I'd ever seen that as a matter of fact, and a lot of your West coast drivers had A's. Had uh, their number and, an, and a, um, uh, a letter behind it, or a three-digit number too. There was a lot of three-digit numbers mm-hmm. out west.
1: Yeah, and you know too, Buzz. I mean, as late as the mid '60s, you know, we saw Dan Gurney running the Wood Brothers car or the 121 mm-hmm. car, and he won, I think, four times using that 121. Of course, if you are like you said, if you are a Winston West driver uh to to sort of distinguish you as a winston west or a when a western driver is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. then they would put a, a third number on there and mm-hmm. of course that was very prominent uh among the wood brothers i think parnelli jones ran three numbers uh with bill stroop's cars if i'm mm-hmm. not mistaken yeah, also
3: that's
1: right yeah 115 right yeah. but you know backing up to uh back in the early days of, of sign painting i mean it's, it's a lost art really and and a lot of people don't realize this but you yourself had uh painted uh, a lot of the cars uh back in that era some prominent race cars i just wonder if you could share some of that with our listeners yeah. and how that came about
3: sure well i i was going to be a race car driver and when i was about 14 i'd saved my money and there was a 55 Chevy sitting down the road that was just sitting next to a house had a roll cage in it and all of that. And I checked into it and the guy wanted to sell it to me for 50 Mm -hmm. bucks. (laughs) And he said that the engine was blown. So we went ahead and we dug the thing home and my dad started playing with it. He was a mechanic and he realized that the distributor cap was on backwards. So we changed the distributor cap around and the darn thing cranked right up. And we drove that thing for three seasons and I was only 14 at the time. But uh, we painted it uh, white, and Ray Fox was my hero at the time, the white with mm-hmm. the red number three, so I, I couldn't afford anybody to letter the thing. So I did it myself. And it took me about a week. And uh, that's the first car I ever lettered. And uh, somebody saw it and said, Hey, that looks pretty good. How about doing mine? And, you know, somebody else said, Hey, how about doing mine? And that was a, literally about a 1000 cars ago. Wow. And I, I've done, I guess, close to a 1000 cars motorcycles and racing oh, books goodness. so um, and uh, some great cars some real museum pieces too the, uh, the the sumar special that is sitting in the museum of arts and sciences in daytona the streamlined car the chapman Rudo. owned, i was fortunate enough to do that car i was very very proud of that machine and uh there, there's been some good ones have uh, what's really fun is cars i've done years ago when they would bring them back to the nascar hall of fame and put them on display it was almost like a
1: reunion you know <laughs> of uh, 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 these cars that I did years ago, so but have you done, have you had any formal training doing this or you just taught <laughs> yourself? No, I just it. picked it up.
3: Wow. Yeah, yeah just, just one of those things. And uh, when I was only about maybe seven or so, my dad had a gas station up in Pennsylvania and he had a Jeep that he used for road service. And I remember he had a guy come in one day and letter the Jeep up Bob and Bill's Gulf, Kenya Pressure, Pennsylvania and all this and man I just thought that it was about the coolest thing you know and I always knew I could do that so finally I I finally had to do it and it worked out real well and I made a pretty good living at it too I used to do all the work for the local Coca-Cola company here in town and the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and
2: oh, had some
3: wow.
1: pretty big accounts mm-hmm. over the years
2: wow so I never knew that I never yeah. knew that
1: so so the historian of the NASCAR Hall of Fame has a second life, and a few people knew about it. And the one car I knew about was the, correct me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't it the 1974 Perlator Mercury of David Pearson? Is that the yes. right car?
3: Well, the way that came about, I was doing some artwork, and I'm really kind of a, a commercial artist by trade, even more so than the sign painting. But there was a company called Motorsports Marketing that was a sister company of Daytona Speedway, and they would handle the racing end of different corporations like Pre- Purelator, and Permatex, and the Army, and um, oh, Valvoline, and all that. So I was kind of like their in-house freelance artist. I would do artwork for them. So in 1974, Purelator was coming out with a new logo, and the Wood Brothers were changing to the Montego and so Later wanted something new something different and the wood brothers were very very reluctant to change anything because they've been doing so well with pearson and they said nah, you know, if it ain't break don't fix it you know yeah. one of those deals so i had to work between Later and the woods and come up with something that everybody would be happy with so that's where we brought the red down around the windshield down the center of the hood the line down the center of the hood became the l for Later. and then the red branched out and went around the nose of the car and it, uh, the blue line on the Pure Later logo went all the way around the car. And, you know, some subtle changes, but just enough to make everybody happy.
0: Wow. So I did
3: that in late 73, and then they kept that paint job for a number of years. And the car that, one uh, that won the Daytona 576 was my design, but I didn't actually paint that particular car that was all decals. But um, I had just moved to San Francisco, and I was sitting in the appliance department at Sears in a mall out there, and watching the daytona 500 on tv and here comes pity and pearson off the fourth turn and they're smashing into each other and the cars are spinning and pearson goes ahead and kicks the clutch in and lump, lumps across the uh, uh star finish line at about five miles an hour with my paint job on it man i just about came on <laughs> glued with sears
2: that's cool. <laughs> why weren't you in daytona
3: you should have been there buddy i well i just moved to san francisco i thought i was gonna make a killing out there yeah, <laughs>
1: Well that's cool. Let me let me back up a bit yeah. history-wise. Okay, so if I'm telling this correctly, and I think I am, let's go back to I don't know, let's go back to 1960, let's as a year, for instance. Mm-hmm. So you're in the garage area at Daytona. Let's just pick a track, mm-hmm. and you've got a garage area full of cars. And let's say someone gets into the first turn wall. So I think I'm right about this you have sign painters, say one, two, three sign painters in the garage, or they're, they're just there in case somebody gets in the in the wall, or yeah. someone comes to them, say Leonard Wood or Glenn Wood, say, hey, we picked up a sponsor. We want to paint on the back of the car or, say, the quarter panels of the car. So they're there just for that reason, right? Because oh, yeah. this is it kind of before common. decals, right? Yeah.
3: Very common that you'd have uh, itinerant sign painters I among them. Uh, just wandering through the garage area waiting for an opportunity to make a couple of
1: bucks. Well, okay. So the, so tell me about the type of paint that, that you're talking about. Because you've said to me, and I have a real interest in this kind of thing, it's sort of a lost art now mm-hmm. because we have such a prominence in, well, actually, I started to say in decals, but that's even not as prominent as the wraps today in yeah, the cars. Right. The wraps uh, are amazing. So, you but you said, and I said it earlier in the podcast, it's basically a paint that's very forgiving. In other words, what I mean by that is that you're tooling along and you're, you know, you're trying to wear I'm being funny here, but <laughs> trying to spell the word stop and you spell it S P O T. Yeah, you know, oh like, yeah, we cratter. <laughs> oh, I messed that up. <laughs> so, what do you do? So, you just take a, a water, is it like a water based?
3: No, it's paint. it's enamel. It's it's, oh, it's a, enamel. Okay. enamel-based paint, but uh, what you want to do is when you're working in an, a, uh, an environment like the pit area where you know people are working on the cars, bumping up against the cars, and you got to oh. get that paint to dry quickly. And some of your colors don't dry as quick like your maroons, your reds. It takes a long time for them to dry. So what you want to do is instead of using turpentine or mineral spirits to thin the paint, you want to use gasoline because hmm. the gasoline evaporates very quickly and your paint sets up a lot quicker And the car, you know, th- that, sign isn't going to be on the car that long. Anyway, they, they just have to get it through the race and get it back home. So you go ahead and b- carry a little bit of
1: gasoline with you. And, uh, and that
3: works out pretty well that way.
1: So, so pardon my ignorance here, but how do you keep it from getting into the paint itself? In What's other it? words, how do you keep it from getting into the paint scheme itself? Like you've already painted the car red and white, for instance, and the back corner panel is white. How do you keep Mm -hmm. from messing up the white?
3: Yeah. Oh, that's easy enough. That's no problem. Yeah, the the paint is very forgiving. Uh, You can take it off real easily with a little bit of mineral spirits or paint reducer or something like that. And um, what most of your automotive paints are acrylics, or even back in the old days, you had uh, enamel with hardener and all that. And the paint that the sign painters use is a very, very mild enamel, so it doesn't have a lot of heat to it. And you don't have to worry about hurting the paint underneath where the lettering's going it's no problem there at all it's a very rugged paint on the car and not so rugged that you're using it on the
1: lettering <laughs> here's here's a, i'm sorry jerry i'm just one more quick and i right. turn it back to you but huh. did you ever run into a situation i'm being a little bit funny here but did you run in a situation where you had a paint a sign painter who was really he really proud of something he did and then He's like, voila, this is awesome. And then he goes out, the driver goes out and just kills it. <laughs> and then he comes back in and fixes it again. Mm-hmm. And he goes back and kills it again. You ever run into that? Yeah. Where... No, not me personally,
3: but I've seen that happen a few times. And <laughs> uh, like, they wonder stop. why sign painters drink,
1: you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> stop messing up my paint. Yeah. I just fixed that. <laughs> and there you go, back into turn two again. And yeah, you know, what'd you do that for? Oh, yeah. So yeah. I mean I, I just think it's fascinating back in those early days in the I guess the fit because you saw a lot of that kind of thing. You know, if you go back and look at the early vintage um f- films, say of Darlington, uh say the 57, 58, 59, southern five hundreds, mm-hmm. th- there's some very colorful paint uh, markings on the cars, like the numbers and the sponsors and the, the shadows of the quarter panel sponsors and stuff like that. And to me, it's just interesting, uh, all the work that has gone into some of those sponsor markings, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And okay. then, you know, they, then they bring them back to the garage, all torn, all the pieces like that. And I noticed on the hoods of some of those, like I noticed the car that, uh, Curtis Turner was driving in the 57. Southern 500 for Smokey eunuch and it mm-hmm. said 245 horsepower on the hood. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know how uh, ornately lettered that was, it was just kind of cool to see. Of course, he wadded it up uh, on the back stretch, and he had to look through the grill and through through the hood, you know, to see his way back to the garage area. And it's like, Man, I hate that because that was such a nice paint scheme on there. Oh, black I know and it's, gold. it's
3: sad because a lot of that uh, paintwork is really beautiful works of art. Mm-hmm. And you know some of the guys were really like uh, you know Michelangelos of the of the sign brush more or less.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, Jerry, I'm I'm through f- rambling here. I'll turn it back <laughs> right. to you a little bit. I just am fa- so fascinated with this. I mean, Buzz and I've talked about this in depth before about how cool it is to paint these mm-hmm. things, and it's it's not like it is of course today but back then it was just so I, I think it would have been fun to sit back and watch mm-hmm. a paint a, a sign painter in the garage mm-hmm. putting numbers on our quarter panel sponsorships and stuff on just watching that process
3: well what was kind of cool in 1974 for the Daytona 500 <clears throat> Benny Parsons who had just won the championship the year before had gotten a new sponsor in Kings row fireplace shops. Mm-hmm. And, um, they had, uh, and I got a call from the, the motorsports marketing company that I was telling you about. They said, Hey, we got a new client in Kings row fireplace shops and they need their logo on each rear quarter and across the nose over the, uh, over the grill. Uh, are you busy? I said, Hey, no. So I loaded up my junk and I go out there and spent the rest of the day lettering both quarter sections, putting the King, you know, there was kind of a stylized King, and uh and it was really neat and um uh, uh I'm, I'm left-handed so everything i letter has to go backwards mm-hmm. if i start at the kings row fireplace shops i start at the p and i go back to the oh. k and kings because uh, i have to see where i'm going you know i i, wow. I uh, you, you can't cover up your your lettering as your lettering because you have to be able to space your letters out so uh who was sitting there but richard petty came over and he sat there for about a half hour just watching and he couldn't figure out how anybody could letter backwards like that <laughs> so, <laughs> anytime i i go ahead and uh, get out there and do some work in the pits it always drew a crowd you know because this guy's lettering backwards and that's mm. where you forget how to spell sometimes and that gets real embarrassing
1: well, that's that's what would bug me. If I was going to do that kind of thing myself, I would have to say, give me a room, block off the windows, no. lock the door. No. I, I couldn't do it in front of somebody. Oh, no. It's like what, someone watching me type on my laptop. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I misspell everything. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't, I oh, can't no. do it. I mean, because I'm just, um, I've got to have some privacy. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to send an email and somebody's over my shoulder. It's like, okay, you can't do that.
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> I
1: misspell everything lord help me if i was trying to paint something like that yeah so i admire you for letting people watch you so it was a
3: lot of fun uh there was very interesting people that were involved in the sign business over the years there was a guy named archie mcmillan and if you remember Mm airlift one of the sponsors one of the early sponsors of nascar well, Archie was the airlift representative for NASCAR, but he was also a really good sign painter. Mm. So he'd be uh, in the pits, like especially at Darlington, or maybe on the beach in Daytona, doing his airlift thing. But then he would also do lettering, and he'd letter the cars. And in later years, when he left airlift, he moved to Daytona and he went to work for the Speedway as the Speedway's painter. And uh, any of the old signs, there was old no smoking signs and ticket signs and all that sort of thing, and it was all. Archie McMillan. And he was a really neat guy. I, I used his projector a few times and uh, uh, he, you know, I, I pick his brain because he's one of the old masters. You know, this goes back to the probably the early 70s when he was out there and uh, just a really, really neat guy. And he and he didn't drink either, which was very unusual back then.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I thought he said all sign painters wind up drinking. There you go. I mean, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. And do, well, do you remember Marshall Teague's Hudson Hornets? Yeah. Well, um that fabulous Hudson Hornet that was on the side of the car, that was designed by Marshall's brother Tommy. Tommy was an artist and he lettered that uh those Hudson Hornets for for Marshall. And the car that Marshall won the beach race with in 1959 was actually owned by the Hudson dealer in Jacksonville. So Marshall took masking tape and he masked up the whole front of the car, the grill, the windshield, well part of the windshield, and uh, you know, anything that would be facing the 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 onslaught of the sand so that it wouldn't get pitted and then tommy littered the whole car in watercolors and if you look at there's a picture of marshall and the whole crew and marshall's wife mitzi standing next to him after that break after the race and mitzi has a white coat on and marshall had bought her this beautiful white coat just for the race and so what happened was she uh, she leaned up against the car and she she moved along the car and smeared all the paint oh, no. ruined no. the coat. and if you look at that picture you'll see that the lever is smeared where she leaned up against it because the, oh. the paint was still kind of wet because it was kind of damp out down there on the beach yeah. it was a little bit later on in the day so the sun was going down and, and uh she ruined her coat she was all upset about that
1: oh wow yeah I've got a Brent here hanging in my office. I believe it was Dan McCrary, I think was the Oh artist. Dan McCrary, he was fantastic. Yeah, yes. yeah. and it's of uh, the Hudson Hornets with Herb Thomas, uh, about a half a car length ahead of mm-hmm. uh, the Marshall mm-hmm. T car. But oh Dan's water watercolors. Beautiful, yep. beautiful watercolor those two cars. But uh, yep. but yeah, um Just, uh, and I'm sorry, Jerry, go ahead. (laughs) I've cut you off every time in the past 15
2: minutes. So go ahead, Jerry. That's all right. Plus, I I have a couple questions for you. And this one is something that has, I've I've been confounded by this probably, I've been covering NASCAR for almost 30 years and I have Mm -hmm. never been able to get an answer for this. So maybe you can give me some clarity on this. You know, I've covered all other major professional sports and invariably when one athlete's talking about another, another athlete, More often than not, they'll say their last name or their first name or what have you. But in NASCAR, it's very unique in the sense that a driver will say, well, the 31 or the 15 or the 70 or, you know, they don't refer, they don't say the driver's name, they say the car number. Mm -hmm. Is there there kind of like a history about how that kind of began and evolved? Because I mean, I, I have noticed though, especially in the NFL of late, last few years, where sometimes players will say, "Well, you know, the fifty-one, I, you know, he he uh, he, he stiff armed me or something like that." I mean, mm-hmm. and that's kind of you know, you know kind of taken off the, from what NASCAR did with its numbers. But I mean, mm-hmm. how did that whole thing kind of start? Where the drivers start referring to the car, I mean, to the the other drivers by their car numbers? Did you know that?
3: Yeah, no, I don't know how that began. They're probably out of frustration with the other guy, you know, <laughs> right. most likely, and if he was trying to explain it to the uh, to to his crew. Yeah, that, that damn number 51 ran into me that sort of thing you know or if he's if he's uh speaking over the uh, media right you know, to kind of help clarify that if somebody didn't know the name they definitely knew what the number was
2: right right right. so
3: i'm just speculating in that situation you know okay. oh, oh here, here's something interesting too uh one of, one of the greatest names in racing his name came about because a sign painter screwed up Parnelli jones the guy misspelled his name on the roof of a car and it wasn't supposed to be Parnelli. His name was Rufus Parnell Jones. <laughs> this kind of Parnelli, and it stuck. So really? they called him Parnelli
2: ever since the
1: early days.
2: Oh, I did not know that. That's a good. That's, a that's
1: good very one. interesting to know. Okay.
2: Right, right. Well, I, well, I have one other question I wanted to ask you too. Yeah. Is you know, and you know, we talk. You know, obviously, a lifetime in motorsports, formerly known as lifetime in NASCAR. We talk about the history of the sport, but I, I wanted to get your take since you know you're so involved with you know the sign, sign painting, and the numbering and all that over the years. And plus, you're also obviously the historian at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. What's your take about how the numbering has changed, uh, you know, since you know, they changed the numbers where they moved the numbers off the door and more like towards the fender. What, what's your take on it? a good thing, bad thing? I mean, what's your talk, take on that?
3: Yeah, I think it's kind of neat. In fact, I've got a sketch. It's not a sketch. Actually, it's a photograph of Cal Yarbrough's um, car that he was driving for Junior Johnson in 1974. It was the Monte Carlo. And John Cooper, who was at the, at the time the president of Daytona Speedway, called me up one time and he said why don't you come on out here I've got an idea that I think would be kind of neat so I went out there and here he had taken a magic marker and he had put the name of the car uh, or the sponsor down the whole side of the car and then put the number behind the rear wheel mm. on the rear quarter, cor- the very mm. rear of the rear quarter and put the number back there and so this is probably 19 about 1975 I guess he had the idea and he showed it to me he wanted to know if i could do a painting of the car as a finished piece and in the meantime the francis saw it and they didn't like it so they've been batting this around for quite a long time you know they, they could have actually done that back in the 70s if the francis had gone for it but john cooper came up with an idea to move the number to the back and now here they want to have they moved it to the front my wife hates it she just really she just can't stand it <laughs> but i think it's okay
1: well your your best friend one of your best friends on this podcast, don't like it either. Mm. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, was that right? Okay. But anyway, we <laughs> shall be uh, remain nameless. Mm-hmm. I just I know I know that the fabulous Hudson Hornets with Herb Thomas and uh, you know Mister Teague had it. I know that, but mm-hmm. I mean, I've always felt like the door number in the middle was the cornerstone of our mm-hmm. sport, mm-hmm. and I've written about it and talked about it probably more than i should but anyway that's just a different podcast yeah, yeah i
3: did but, a, a 54 hudson uh, a herb thomas car and man they went crazy with the numbers back then they had a big number on each front fender yeah where they have them now they had a huge number 92 on the rear trunk then they had a 92 on each of the four corners mm-hmm. of the roof and you talk about overdoing it and each one of those numbers was double outlined it was oh, a white geez. number with a red outline and a black outline. And it took me forever to letter <laughs> that damn thing. But uh, well, they, uh, they they simplified it over yeah. the years, you know, and I think they have enough lettering on there now.
1: Yeah. Well, well let me ask you this. I've seen, I've seen footage of Ned Jarrett uh, talking back uh, 1965 mm-hmm. when he was driving the number 11 car. Uh, and actually, year he won the Southern 500 mm-hmm. by 14 laps that year. But I've seen footage of it. Where, and I'm trying to sort of pinpoint this, and I think it's about that same time. When do you know of decals as far as numbers coming into the sport decal wise? Would it have been early 60s, mid 60s? Yeah, it probably would have been around mid
3: 60s. I know the Pennies have been using decals on their numbers for a long time before. Anybody else was even thinking about decals, decals, even the individual letters on the uh, on the logo that he had on the rear quarter and on the front fender, there was a shoe company that sponsored them, and uh, those are all decals. And uh, and then the, most of the lettering was still hand-done probably up until the early 80s, and the last car I can recall that had hand-painted numbers was the number 28 of Kelly Kay- Yarborough when he drove for the Hardee's deal well, the, the chevy that he do it for hard but the numbers were were hand painted and that's about the last time i can think of anybody that had uh yeah. hand painted numbers yeah. on
1: the car and why do you think the decals happened was it and this is my theory when we went and you might just agree or disagree when you're doing 54 or 58 races a year uh, back in in the early '60s or whatever, it was a little hard to get a sign painter to oh, do yeah, that many yeah. right because you need to you need to mm-hmm. turn around quickly and say I don't have time for this guy to show up mm-hmm. you know four times a week uh to to put the numbers on the car let's just decal them would oh, yeah would yeah
3: I'd say so and I know that home in the movie had one particular guy a guy and his son that used to do all their lettering and when you figure how many cars they were fielding and how many races were run. I mean, those guys must've been doing nothing but home and the moody work. And, uh, you know, any of that ta- lettering is, is very time consuming. And then you have the drying factor too, if you don't have the gas. Limit. Yeah. And, uh, and then you're trying to work on the cars and everything. And it's, it is difficult, but I think the decal was really a blessing to the teams. And, um, you know, I'm sure the, the sign painters would like to have gotten their fee for doing the lettering. But, uh, as far as the team goes, the, uh, and the wraps, especially now, I mean, they can wrap a car in a matter of hours. And that's, that's incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that brings up another good question. When, when you're lettering a car in the seventies, I mean, roughly, you know, what kind of time frame were you looking at from the time you're, you know, you're getting your paint prepared and such, and you're sitting down on a milk crate, whatever you yeah. had to do to the time it's the guys putting the thing in reverse, leaving <laughs> yeah. the garage. Right. I mean. What kind of what kind of time for well, a lot of it depends at? on the the
3: amount of lettering that's on the car yeah and uh the style of lettering too some styles of letter take uh, takes a lot longer than your regular brush stroke or something like that or your block and uh, i'd always allow two days and that's kind of hard to tie a car up for two days but uh you know if you're motivated in the pit area you know you're going to figure out a way to to get it done quick 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 that sort of thing you know and you might have to sacrifice a little bit of um uh the expertise or um or or the artistic ability that sort of thing you might have to cut a few corners but uh, time is of the essence when you're in the pits
2: yeah you know buzz one thing i was wondering about um you know as the evolution of the cars have, have gone and the you know the paints and the signs and all that you've been you've been there you know almost from the beginning, you know, in terms of painting cars, and then you became a historian in that, you know, looking at where the sport is at today uh, and looking at where it's come from. um, I've got to wonder, you're in retirement now, you're still painting. So you're not really retired <laughs> per se. <laughs> I, I mean, do you do any kind of, I may have the wrong term here, but the mm-hmm. freehand uh, uh, painting, do you do any like artwork or anything? Oh, Sure. Of? You do. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I still have a couple of commissions right now. There was a fellow who just donated a car to the museum here in Daytona. Uh, It's a little Pontiac Tempest that Paul Goldsmith drove in 63 in the the Continental race at Daytona. Mm -hmm. And he beat all the uh, Ferraris and the Corvettes with this little Tempest. So the guy wants me to do a portrait of that. And then I've got a couple of other paintings that are kind of sitting there, a couple of commissions that I got to get my thumb out of my ear and get them done. And uh, and I'm about as busy as I want to be. Then I just got the call yesterday from Len Wood that he has, he's going to have that other car ready in October. So we'll be coming up there for a couple of days. And he said, I can drag it down to you. I said, oh, no, my wife wants to get out of town. So we'll go ahead and we'll go on up to Mooresville. We'll go ahead and litter that car. It'll take me a couple of days to do that, probably. So you, are, that...
2: kind of, you are kind of like the Picasso or the Michelangelo of NASCAR, so to speak. I mean... The you... <laughs> hey, you want to be my manager? Hey, will <laughs> give you 10%. Just, well, I'll do there, you there. Know? <laughs>
3: yeah. It's yeah. funny. People look at the artwork and the sign work, and they say, man, if I could paint like that, I'd make a million bucks. And I tell them, you show me how to make a million bucks at this, and I'll give you 50%. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, well here's a question for you. I mean, this might be an elementary uh or maybe uneducated question, but it's interesting to me I guess to ask it. Is is there a, a one particular brush number or a brush that you use the most or is it a bunch of different brushes that make up what you do? In other words, is there do you have a favorite number of brush, like a number four or a number five or something? Is that the, the go-to gun that you shoot out of your holster? store? Yeah, yeah.
3: well, <laughs> most of the time, the, the lettering you're going to do on a car with your, your big brush, uh, you know, your big numbers, you're going to have to probably a three-quarter inch, maybe a one-inch brush uh-huh. for doing that sort of thing. And um, then for the lettering itself, probably a number six would work out pretty well. And the, the, there's a planned obsolescence on these damn brushes. You just about get them broken in and they die on you and you gotta throw them out. Mm-hmm. And then you gotta keep trimming them. And it, it's, it's kind of an art right there, just trying to keep these brushes alive because you, you fall in love with a brush and oh man, you know, when, when it dies, it's like losing a member of the family. And it, it's just uh, kind of a sad thing when that happens, but uh, uh, they're made out of squirrel hair, most of the brushes. And uh, uh, you can, uh, you know, they run maybe 20 bucks a piece, somewhere around there. Uh, you know, your, your number, uh, let's see, your, your inch brush is gonna run you probably 25, 30 bucks. And but, you know, you make your money back out of it, but you're only as good as your equipment. Same way with a mechanic. He's only as good as the tools he's got. Right. So you wanna go ahead and get the best paint, and get the best brush, and you'll be able to give them the best job.
1: Can can you get, um, are you talking months or a year or? It depends on I'm you know i'm just i'm interested in this how do i mean how long can you get out of a brush mm,
3: it depends on how much
1: you use it yeah
3: you know, like when i was really well in a way when i uh, when i was working you know like 18 hours a day for weeks at a time you know i might wear a brush out in the month sure. or so yeah and then when you're done with it you got to make sure you use the right oil you got to keep them oiled up so that they don't stiffen up on you and then you've got a little uh, piece of metal that you cut and, and a kind of a, a 90 degree angle with a little notch in it, and you want to go ahead and lay the brush, the handle in that little notch and then spread the brush out on the uh, the middle. And uh, that way it always holds its shape. And you don't want the the edges to curl. and you know you don't want uh, you don't want to get uh, any hairs stuck together. that's miserable. and you want to make sure you get all the paint out of the ferrule. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a
1: science unto itself, really. Yeah. Okay. One more and I'll get, I'll let Jerry chime in again. I'm just fascinated (laughs) by this. This is so much fun to talk about. Okay. You've done a a two, a two part question. Uh, Roughly how many cars have you lettered? race cars have you lettered? And is there one that you stood back and said, that one is cool. I enjoyed that one. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. I, I literally close to a thousand cars. Really? Wow. And, and that's yeah and that's including pinstriping motorcycles uh lettering motorcycles lettering uh dragsters uh, that indy car that's here in daytona uh even a couple of airplanes that was always kind of interesting
2: uh-huh.
3: and so uh, but the, the one car the, the one that i feel i did the best job on was that herb thomas 1954 uh, hudson hornet it turned out perfect Huh. And there's others that are very similar to it that I'm very happy with and very proud of. But that one there, that was just a real special deal. It took about three days to do. And there's nothing that
1: isn't just perfect as far as I'm where, concerned. Where is that car now, do you know? I don't
3: know. It was on display when Herb Thomas went into the Hall of Fame. And I think the guy that owns it lives in New York, if I'm not mistaken. And that, that was done probably, oh, gosh, I guess maybe 25 years ago. So the, the, the paint's held up well. You know, the effect fact, the, the lettering has held it better than the paint on the car itself. Huh.
1: interesting.
2: Mm. Well, you know, wow. one thing I'm, I'm going to, you know, when reporters or historians or pretty much anybody that's involved in racing get together, obviously, they like to talk shop. They like to compare notes. One guy in particular, and sadly, he's no longer with us, but I, I, I'm i curious, even though his um, genre was different in the sense that he was more of a uh, applied painter of you know uh, you know not only like program covers but also like uh, you know guitars at you know Nashville for the winter that kind of thing mm. and obviously the late Sam Bass one of the greatest guys I've mm. ever the sport. loved the guy absolutely loved the man and you know such a great mm. loss to the sport when you and Sam got together, did you guys ever talk shop? I'm I'm curious. I mean, did you ever talk oh, about heck, painting designs yeah. and, and how to do things, that kind of stuff?
3: Yeah. Uh, all the time. All the time. Yeah. Uh, Sam and I, we had a mutual, uh, what do you want to call it? A mutual admiration society. Mm-hmm. I just saw the world of him and uh, I was amazed at what he accomplished. It's something that I was never able to do, you know, to make a really good living out of it. And, uh, but I always admired his creativity too. His uh, his compositions that he did in his paintings were tremendous, and the creativity I just thought it was great. And um, and a couple of his cars were probably two of my favorites. You know, the Bobby Allison car that uh, uh, that Bobby was hurt in, unfortunately, but that gold and white uh, Miller High Life car, the Buick, was just one of the prettiest cars I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to admire him for the uh, for the uh rainbow warrior of jeff gordon too right. i mean that was a, a totally iconic car so uh yeah
1: I, I really miss sam too i i always enjoy talking to him yeah yeah well you know buzz i mean you've done so much in this sport uh as far as just the history alone a walking encyclopedia of of knowledge about nascar and then And then the second chapter of your life, and of course, is the the lettering of so many of these iconic race cars that won so many races. And that's the sort of the side of, of your life that a lot of people don't know about, but I mean, just the, you know, knowing that you lettered the David Pearson, number 21 car and the Benny Parsons King car. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's fascinating that, that you've, you've done so much in this business. Uh, and I admire you tremendously. I mean, you and I are have been longtime friends on the history front, and longtime mm-hmm. just great friends. Yes. But I just love talking to you about both of those subjects. And uh, mm-hmm. and you know, any every time I go into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, I I see all these beautiful race cars, and I, I have to admit to you that I I look at them and say, hmm. I wonder if Buzz did that one. <laughs> I always look at that and say,
3: hmm,
1: I wonder if that's a Buzz creation over there. But you do a tremendous work on these race cars. And also, you're a great asset to our sport and a great brother to me, too. I appreciate you. Well, thank
3: you. you. I, yeah. I, I admire you, too, and what, what you guys are doing. And I think it's fantastic that you're you're able to, uh, to capture this aspect of the sport. And I really admire that.
2: Thank you. What? Yeah. Buzz, what do you consider yourself? I mean, do you consider yourself uh, a painter first and a historian second, or a historian first, painter second? I mean, how, or how do you kind of quantify, you know, because you've had such a great career? I mean, a fantastic career. I mean, yeah. and on and, and both sides of the fence, so to speak. Yeah, whichever pays the most,
3: I think, is what I'll be this week. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, <laughs> Nowadays, I'm a historian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the motto across the board
3: for all of us
2: in this business, really. <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: that's for well, sure. I'm, I, I'm yeah.
2: curious, what what have you not done that you would like to still do in, you know, in your uh, career? I mean, obviously, you're you're retired in name only right now because you're so busy and everything else you're doing. But is there something that's still on your bucket list that you would still like to achieve or do, uh, you know, in the next 5, 10 years or so?
3: Yeah, you know, one thing I'd like to do, which I'll never get to do because I don't do it anymore, was uh, I, would, I always wanted to let her a Formula One car.
0: Mm. I think that would really
3: be neat. It mm-hmm. would really be cool. I've done Indy cars. I've done a lot of sports cars, prototypes and things, you know, for the 24 hours of Daytona and all that. But a, but an F1 car, that would really be a, a kind of a feather in my cap, I think. And I, I don't think I'll ever get
1: the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got an idea for you. You started off your career wanting to drive race cars. So what you do is you pick a car that you've lettered somewhere along the way with a ton of history mm-hmm. and then see if somebody will let you drive it at one of these um you know functions like at VIR where mm-hmm. you know you're not going to wreck it you just want to drive it right Oh
3: yeah yeah there you go <laughs> So That's
1: take that take that Herb Thomas car you're talking about and yeah. look the guy up and say yeah, I'd like to drive that car. i see what he <laughs> says. <laughs> I lettered it. How about let me drive it?
2: Uh, see what he says. Be cool. Yeah, well, I mean, here's, the, here's, an, here's an even better idea. I, I'm sure you've probably heard of the um, the lemons series. Where it's oh, like, I love that. I want to yeah, do I mean, that you'd be perfect. I mean, you, you could do your driving, you could do your painting. You have you cover all the whole the whole gamut, if you will. Still, yeah. You know? yeah, there you go.
3: It's got to be a bucket list. That is something yeah. I want to do before I I kick off. Definitely. I think
1: we ought to get together and just get our own racing team. You know, I think that'd be super. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. You know, I'll put in my 50 cents. How about you guys? Yeah,
2: I got yeah, five I got bucks right out of my pocket. Oh, hey, there yeah, you go. Okay. I think
1: yeah. I got
3: about 780
1: here, somewhere around <laughs> there. But you know, we, we've we kid about this, but think, think back to that, what I said early in the beginning of the podcast, and I don't know how your wife would feel and your Jerry, your wife would feel, but I know how mine would feel when you walked into the, the kitchen instead, honey, I'm going to take your 2020 Chevrolet Impala or your whatever, and I'm going to take it down to the local racetrack and race it. I mean, think about how those guys, what kind of response would they get? Because oh, the cars oh that we talked about initially, they were cars right out of the driveway. Yeah. And they, as we initially talked about, you'd get the shoe polish and put that number on there. And mm-hmm. I just couldn't imagine having that conversation. Could you really? <laughs> oh, my gosh.
3: Well, you know, Tim Flock told the story about the first cup race that, you know, that they had back in 49. Yeah. And he didn't have a ride. And there was a guy who had come to the track. He and his wife, they had their brand new car. And they offered that car to Tim. The guy's name was Mr. Elliott and um and tim used that car and ran that race and it was their own own personal car that they drove to the racetrack in and then there was another guy named craig mellinger craig was a starter up in new jersey back when my dad had his car and craig was very very uh, flashy he had uh, white pants and white shoes and a silk shirt and a beret he wore a beret he was quite the dude you know yeah. so anyway he had a, had a brand new ford and they were short one night for the races and uh, so they put a, a word out anybody who wanted to uh, uh get in the race you know they they were accepting cars so craig he of course he had to flag the race so they went ahead they turned the car over to some kid and the kid stuffed the thing tore it up really bad so they went ahead and um, then hooked it to a wrecker and they took it down on route 17 a few miles down the road where fence posts were knocked down and craig called the cops and said that his car was stolen <laughs> 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 and they call him back mr Miller. i'm sorry we found your card uh, it's destroyed oh no not my new car
1: <laughs> so, yeah the insurance no, that, company
3: gets paid off on it
1: <laughs> yeah well that kind of fits the same categories when frank mundy drove his personal car on the southern 500 in 1950 or oh, i'm sorry it wasn't his personal car it was a rental car uh-huh. and uh he he drove it in the 1957 500, took it back to the rental car place, and said, "Boy, the front end on this thing sure is out of whack. Look at the front tires. <laughs> said, I'll get, I'll get my boys. I'll get my guys right on that. We need to fix that." <laughs> and you know, he it didn't tear up the car, but the front end, the front tires, he he was pretty well bald when he took them back. So you know, That's same sort of thing. Really, and, and Frank Mundy was another one, but just, you know, snappy dresser, but he was. Uh, he won three races, but you know, lots of characters back in those days. Oh man, I'm sure. not kidding. Uh, you know, what's interesting, Ray Fox, the, he had a son named Danny who
3: was a very, very good artist and a good sign painter. And he used to letter all the race cars, those white number threes. Mm. And then uh, Danny was a, a kind of a, a protege to a guy named LG Davis. Now, LG was a guy here in town back in the day when uh, Daryl was driving the uh, Mountain Dew car. On the side of the transporter there was a complete uh life-size painting of the mountain dew car on the side yeah. of that trailer and LG oh wow i remember that he was The first one to do that yeah interesting he was the very first one to do a portrait of the car on the trailer And the guy was brilliant he's still in town too he still lives in here in daytona and wow. now he does the glass etching he doesn't do the sign work much anymore mm. but uh, wow. very interesting character
1: well it was it was uh, a a lost art Uh, and thanks to you, it's not lost entirely because you're still doing this kind of thing, but to do it accurately, of course, I mean, you do, you're continuing to, to letter the older cars, the the cars for the wood brothers and various ones and, and, and very much appreciated because we don't want to lose that. It's cool, man. It's, it's great that you're still doing it. Well,
3: whenever I come up, I'll give you a call. And if you can make your way down to, uh, Mooresville, maybe you want to come up. Come by absolutely. Yeah,
1: watch, you know, watch the operation. Oh, I, I want to. I I would absolutely clear my calendar to see that. I want to. You find me the the old milk crate, and I will sit on yeah. it for sure. I want, There's to, a story I want to, to see to write it, there, Ben.
2: There you go. There's a story for you to write. There you go. <laughs>
1: absolutely, I I would very much love to write that story because I I just I've never seen it done. And I've, I've heard so much about the way it was done in the 60s. And I can just imagine these guys just kind of, you know, propping up on a pole, close to a pole somewhere in the garage, just waiting on the next guy to scrape it, you know, and and just, you know, just waiting to, to get their job done. And, oh, yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. And, oh, well, there was
1: a guy named Dick Beebe,
3: and Dick owned the Mark Times, M-A-R-C Times. Mark was the name of ARCA early on. In, yeah changed the name to uh, Arca. So this Mark Times was a Midwestern newspaper. And uh, Dick would come to Daytona every year with his big Ford station wagon with Mark Times on the side. And he'd get his brushes it out and he'd go ahead and do paint. He did all of Cotton or not Cotton Owens, I'm sorry. He did all of a um, Banjo Matthews cars. Remember that beautiful slanted number twenty seven really? on the old Banjo Matthews cars. So that was some of Dick's work. And he uh he would definitely uh uh, come down to Daytona, and he, he, you know, kind of supplement his income by doing lettering oh, while well, he's selling his newspapers.
1: Wow, it's amazing to see. I, I cannot wait. You so let's stay in touch. You let me know. I want to be there. Okay,
3: it'll be in October sometime. Oh, great, I'll Buzz, be there. Buzz,
2: I, Buzz I, I've got to ask you a question. You know, um we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this before we let you go. And you know, there's been so many, um, you know. Uh, Platitudes and and so much praise about how the NASCAR Hall of Fame was built, but you were right there in the middle of it because you were you mm. helped bring a lot of the collection yeah. there. You you know a lot of the uh, displays. You you managed to get a lot of the cars involved. How how satisfying was it to be the guy? I mean, you know, we we talk about everybody else that was involved. You know, like Winston Kelly and folks like that, but. I don't think there would have been, I mean, and I mean this very sincerely, I don't think we'd have the hall of fame we have today if it wasn't for Buzz McKim. And, and wow. The, the I
3: Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. It's the most satisfying thing I've ever done. Really? The, the 10 years of working with the hall of fame was just tremendous. I look back today and I look at the, some of the things that I was able to experience, the people I got to meet, and the things that I found, it was, it was almost surreal. And I, I really take a lot of pride in, the tur know, how the turn, uh, how the, uh, the hall of Fame turned out and that was just a just a cog in the in the wheel you know uh, just uh, part of the team but uh, we had a lot of good people that worked on that team and uh, and it, I just happened to be you know standing out front uh, of course when you're out front you're a big target too you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well you know the the one thing that I admire you and I we we did an interview I don't know maybe I want to say six seven eight years ago whatever it was. And I remember you were so, and I can't remember, excuse me, I apologize. I don't remember the exact what it was, but you were, you were in pursuit of something you were looking for something. that was really rare. And I, I um, was amazed and, and enthralled at your enthusiasm because you just wanted to find this. And I, and I don't remember what it was, but you know, mm. your, your, your enthusiasm you know, rubbed off on me because I said, God, I want Buzz to find this darn thing. You know I mean? He's looking for this you know, so, so much and, you know, that has to be satisfying, uh, you know, not only the job, but, you know, when you wanted to get a certain piece of history to kind of like be like the last piece of the puzzle, you know, for a display or what have Mm -hmm. you, that that you were able to do that. I mean, you know, I I still remember those conversations you and I had. And, you know, uh, I I know you probably miss a little bit of that, but at the same time, you have a lot of um, memories to look back upon of how you did help You know, build things and how you found things sometimes in the most unusual places.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. And that item that you were talking about, I remember it's uh, a red votes who gave NASCAR his name. You know, he was uh, the number one super duper mechanic of all time when NASCAR was founded, and uh, his car went all the big races and all that well around 1953. Uh, Bill France wanted to award for his contribution to the sport. so he proclaimed the red uh, uh, membership card. And uh, that, that was my holy grail. That's the thing I've been looking for. My whole life, and I know Red's daughter, and she doesn't know what happened to it. And you know, people that that knew Red well, nobody knows whatever became of it. And uh, if anybody finds it, man, I'd, I'd beat a path to that door, you know, to see if I could take a look at that thing. But as far as I know, it doesn't exist. Yeah. So, like no. the
2: one that got away, you might
3: say, right? That's right. That's <laughs> well, the one one thing I went after all the time. We were at the Hall of Fame that I never found. Anything else I went after, we ended up finding it.
1: Yeah. not be well, you know, Buzz, very quickly, one of the things you told me about, I thought was interesting that you were looking for some of Kale Yarborough's uh, uniforms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he owned the dry cleaning store for years and years and might still own it. Yeah. And one of the problems that reasons that you couldn't find some of those uniforms is because his mother uh, would be at the, at the dry cleaning store and people would come in and they would see some of his uniforms that were being dry cleaned. And she loved the fans. So much. She said, she'd say, here, you can just oh, have no. it. You just take it. And yeah. And so she, she would give away his uniforms so as he'd come in and say, Hey, where's my uniform that I had you clean? Oh, I just gave it away. I just gave it to a fan. And so that's why he didn't have a lot of those uniforms yeah. left. And so what do you mean you gave it away? He said, Oh, they were so sweet. I just gave it to him. <laughs> and so, you know, Kale told me that story, but you know, he, there are a couple that are mm-hmm. remaining. I think Dale jr's got one of the Holly farms yeah. ones. But, uh, yeah, she just, you know, they were so yeah. nice. You know, they were just so nice. Oh, I just gave God. it to them. So, you know, that's why some of those got got yeah. given away and yeah. well, taken away. There were but, some guys uh,
3: who lost a lot in divorces mm-hmm. and, or in fires and that sort yeah. of thing. You know, like, uh, 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 there were storms a uh, little bit more. He lost almost all his stuff when a hurricane came through down there in yeah. Charleston. And I, I, you know, tried to find as many images of him that I could find and send them to him. But uh, yeah, that stuff disappears from time to time, and uh, you know, you're lucky to find anything. There was one driver who passed away who uh, you'll never find any of his stuff. It was Al Keller, who was an indie driver, and he ran NASCAR in the 50s mm-hmm. and ran a lot of modified races. And when he passed away, his wife got remarried, and her husband said that he felt uh, his presence in the house. Oh. So they took they took all of uh, Al's memorabilia all his trophies everything and they put it in a room of the house and they bricked the house uh, the the room up kind of like to seal his his uh spirit in that oh, room. Wow. And, oh wow. And I don't think you're ever going to find an Al Keller piece of memorabilia
1: anywhere. Oh my gosh. That's strange, yeah. Huh? Okay. Yep. Maybe we need to do a ghost stories of NASCAR hey. p- f- uh, podcast. There you go. We'll call you back. Oh, yeah. Okay.
3: I could have <laughs> swore we heard fireball walking the halls of the hall one of these days.
2: <laughs> well, you know, here's another mm. idea. I mean, given given your history, uh, Buzz, and, and how much you, you've you been a historian in the sport, have you ever thought about writing a book? I thought about that. We did the NASCAR
3: vault about 10, 12 years right. ago, and that turned out really good. Right. But uh, I, I wouldn't mind doing it. I, I'm working on one of the Wood Brothers, as a matter of fact okay and I'm hoping to get that done pretty soon but uh yeah maybe do something with uh, the l- little known facts of NASCAR you know yeah. something like that and
1: and fi- one final thing Buzz one of the things you all had in the NASCAR Hall of Fame I thought was fascinating was the book that you showed me uh that Fireball kept mm-hmm. uh, of all his winnings and
0: yep.
1: and uh the money uh you know contingency money and things uh from 1950 Darlington Southern 500 to uh the la- the race prior to the May 24th 1964 mm-hmm. race at Charlotte and the, he had a notation where he was going to fill out mm-hmm. what he was going to win at Charlotte of course it wasn't filled out because he yeah. suffered the terrible crash Yeah,
3: that was a well of a book and it I'm was ledger,
1: yeah, and, a ledger yeah uh, ledger. the only
3: mm-hmm. other person I ever saw do that was Jack Ingram Jack did too Mm -hmm. he had the exact same book and he did the exact same thing kept the track of every single penny that he won or he spent
1: yeah and and the handwriting in in Fireball's hand the writing was just perfect I mean it was really well done and very well kept and Mm -hmm. it was just amazing to hold and and I had gloves on when you let me hold it but it was Amazing to look at. Oh, his
3: sister, um, Joanne, just passed away a couple of weeks ago. She was 91 years old. Oh, wow. And she was telling me that he hated the name Fireball. Yeah, everybody called him Glenn. You never yeah. called him Fireball. And uh, if you knew him. And uh, then the family name for him was Bubby, B U B B Y. That was uh, Fireball. Well, uh, Bubby Roberts just doesn't cut it, you know? Yeah. Fireball
1: Roberts sounds pretty good. Yeah. But not Bubby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. I wish. Wished I, I was only four years old when he passed, but I, I would have left or met him. You know, mm-hmm. just a different era. So weird, man. Yeah, it was just, just something to see. Yeah, right. sure was.
2: Yeah. Well, Buzz, we're gonna let you go, but before we do, let's we always do this every uh, episode. This is episode seventy-six, and again, the name mm-hmm. has been changed from a lifetime in NASCAR to a lifetime in motorsports. And mm-hmm. as we do every week, we equate a car number with the episode number. Oh, so this cool. is episode seventy-six. Mm-hmm. So Ben, let's talk about the car number seventy six and uh, it, kind of its mark in the uh, NASCAR history, and then we're going to let Buzz go, go, go. Let Buzz go after that, then.
1: Oh
3: okay. yeah, okay. Car sure number we'll. seventy
2: six.
1: Yeah, car seventy six. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, that number did not have any wins in NASCAR history. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one of the few that I guess didn't, but uh, it had its first start by a driver named Don McClish. Mm. And he started uh, 14th and finished 11th in a 100-mile race to Carroll Speedway in Gardenia, oh California. Right. And it was on November 11th, 1951. It was the 40th race of the 1951 uh, season. But a driver named Don McLeish finished uh, 11th and started 14th. And there's no notation in the records as to what type of car it was. Was it a Buick, Ford, Dodge, mm. Holes? Uh We don't know. so. That's the mystery. Well, the
3: number seventy-six that reminds that I uh, remember that I am thinking of was nineteen sixty-four Daytona five hundred. There was a red number seventy-six that Larry Frank Mm drove, and they were doing action films, uh, filming of the race for the movie Red Line Seven Thousand. They had a big camera mounted on the right front fender of this car and on the left rear corner of the car, so you could uh, see the cars coming and going. And uh, Larry ran the whole race with these, these cameras, no aerodynamic advantage whatsoever. Oh, wow. These are the great yeah. big, you know, 16 millimeter cameras. And they had them mounted on the car and he ran the
2: Daytona 500 like that. How about that? Yeah. That's interesting. But well, you know, the, the 76 now, you know, Ben and, and Buzz, this is something that I don't think we've come across yet. Ben, the 76 has not been run in NASCAR comp, NASCAR cup competition Mm-hmm. since 1994 oh my gosh and mm. you're gonna love the name of the guy who drove the last three races in that car mm-hmm. the gentleman It just happens to be in the hall of fame by the name of ron hornaday jr
3: oh my gosh is that
2: right yes exactly. holy cow I mean, yeah. and I'm going through the list here on race and reference. I mean, other guys uh, who've uh, named the, uh, either one time or a few times, we got uh, Bill Cedric, Tommy Kindle, Hutt Strickland was in there. Oh uh, let's see who else. Ben Arnold was in there. Uh, Larry oh, Franklin, you mentioned. I'm yeah. um, just going through the list here. Who else we got here? Ben Arnold was in there for quite a long time. Yes, he uh, was. Tiny, tiny Lund actually drove the car a couple times too as well. So, uh, But, yeah, the fact that it hasn't been running almost 30 years, geez. We, need, we definitely need to start that racing team, guys. We definitely need to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. And you know, one little track fact about uh, the Red Line 7000 movie. We laugh about this, but it didn't matter which state, uh, which racetrack. Uh, uh, this is a 1965 movie, I believe, when it came out. James Conn was the, one of the, the lead uh, people in the movie. But it didn't matter which racetrack they were at every time the race was over, they ended up back in the same bar every That's night. Right. <laughs> That's right, didn't matter which state they raced in, it was they went back to the same yeah. bar. <laughs> so, there you go, a little bit of a, a little bit of a movie, movie flaw there. But uh, it was, it was, and they, when there was a guy driving the 21 Wood Brothers car that drove, I believe, with a hook and on his right hand. But <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. uh, hey, you know who else
3: was one of the uh, the, the little uh, Crewman was a George Decay oh, star. Trek. Didn't know that. Really? Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. George Decay was
1: in yeah. that movie. Yeah, I, re- yeah, I remember sure watching was. it when I was really young seven, eight, nine years yeah. old and it was interesting. But you know, it that was the only thing I, you know, Steve Wade and I joke about that. Steve Wade was with Nascar scene Illustrated for many years, but we'd always laugh about the fact they'd always end up in the same bar <laughs> every night, whether they were raced at Riverside or Daytona or wherever they raced. So there you go.
2: I, I, have, one, I, I have two words for that. Watch Private up. jet. There you go.
1: <laughs> I don't think they had them in 65. <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
2: Well, then they had, yeah, had a very you fast train then. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. But uh, Buzz, Good we job. can't thank you enough. I mean, uh, yeah. it's, it's always a joy. And, uh, we'd like to extend thank the invitation you. to have you back on again soon. If you're, if you're amenable to it.
3: Oh, my gosh. I'd be happy to. I'd like to have you guys on our show, too. Oh, we have one yeah. called the Definitely Legends of Racing Radio Show, and you can find it on YouTube. And We've done uh, four and a half years. We've done 230-some-odd uh, shows. Oh, and, wow. Uh, in fact, uh, our show tomorrow, it's, it's every Friday from 12 to 1, and Matt Dillner is going to be on our show, if you know Matt. Yes. Yeah, from really very well speedways, yeah. So he's
2: going to be our guest tomorrow. And you do that show live then, right? Yeah, we sure do.
3: I mean, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah I got I'm gonna have to tune in for that and and he sits on YouTube you can get, get on YouTube then, yeah right? yeah it's a legends of racing radio show okay great great yeah. well buzz again we can't thank you enough I mean you've been spectacular as always and uh, oh, it's always it's always nice to talk to you and, and just uh, uh, as I always like to say chew the fat, go back in history all that kind of good stuff you know I mean it's it's yeah. just it's it I mean nothing against today's racing but it's racing was racing back when it was racing if you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying so, well, anytime you guys need anything, please give me a call. I am more than honored to help out. Okay. All right. Uh, ben, do you anything else you wanted to add uh, to, to just Buzz?
1: Just again, thank you, Buzz. It's always a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, you're my brother, brother in, in history. <laughs> and I always appreciate any time we can talk. And he's gotten me out of the fire a few times as far as NASCAR <laughs> history. When I don't know, I know I'm on the edge and I can't find the answer, I always call bus.
3: And what are brothers for, right? That's yeah, right. Exactly. Sure. exactly. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know when I come north.
1: to do. That oh, please talk. do. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll bring my own milk crate. I'll be there.
2: Fantastic. I'm actually going to be in the Charlotte area, I think, around the, um, uh, the Columbus Day weekend, which I think is the October 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th, I think, if I remember correctly. So if you're there, then I may be popping up there, too. You never know. I mean, that'd so be
3: awesome. We get two for the price of one. There yes, you go. Sir. There you go. I'd, All right. looks, I'd love to see it done, for sure. All
2: right, All right All gentlemen.
3: Right. Well, thank you so much. God bless.
2: Same to you, you, buddy. God bless you. Thanks Thanks. thanks ever so much, Buzz. That's Buzz McKim, the longtime uh, uh, historian in NASCAR, NASCAR Hall of Fame, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, I did not know he was, he's one of the biggest uh, sign and uh, number guys in the business for years, and still doing it today, (laughs) even though he's retired. He's not retired. He's He's retired in name only. He's re- he's as busy as he's ever been, but uh, great to talk to him. And you know, you can't, you can't find a nicer guy than Buzz. I mean, the, the man not only has got a great personality, but I mean his his recall, just like Ben, their their recall about history in NASCAR is just unprecedented. You can't meet get anybody that's you know has a better uh, history or recall of history than these two guys. So Buzz, thanks again, and Ben, thank you again as well as as always. Thank you, sir. And- and remember, folks, again, starting the as of this week, you know, going forward, this is episode seventy-six. Like I said, it'll no longer the show will no longer be called a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. It'll become a it'll be called a lifetime in motorsports podcast. <clears throat> so if you have the podcast uh, you know on your favorites I don't know if you have to change that uh, because the wordings change or not, but uh, definitely do not lose it. You're gonna, we got a lot of number, other guests that are going to be coming up here in the next several weeks and a lot of great racing to talk about, uh, you know, both uh, about uh, where NASCAR has come from, where NASCAR is, where NASCAR is going. So, so for Ben White and also for our guest, Buzz McKim, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next time on not only – it's not, not a NASCAR Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. It's a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. Take care, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. We'll i right